0: You are listening to the Converge Media Network, uplifting our voices. Prosperity in Black America. What will this require? Is Black business prospering? Are we reaching women and minority-owned businesses? How do we achieve earning parity for wealth for our families? I'm that provocateur of change. I am Cindy Bright. Welcome to Heartbeat. Good evening, everybody. Welcome to Heartbeat. I am your host, Cindy Bright. Thank you for being here with us this evening. Before I begin the show uh, this evening, I wanted to just take a moment uh, and send um, A shout out or some warm hugs to our founder here at converge media omari salisbury whose father passed last night and so i just wanted to acknowledge him tonight he is the founder and the reason why we're sitting here tonight in converge media studios doing black media matter so our heart is out to him um and we send our love to you and your family from our family and from all of us here omari we want you to know we're thinking about you this evening Tonight's show uh, we're going to do have a conversation. I'm really thrilled uh, to have this conversation tonight. As many of you know, every week we're here discussing a lot of the political power, the issues that we're facing as a community. Legislative session ended, uh, I believe it was last Monday. or Maybe it was this Monday. I'm losing track of time here. And so when the session is over, I tend to pivot. Um, heavier into politics and getting more of our elected officials and people, lobbyists, other people who are advocating on behalf of our community onto the show so that we can have a conversation with them and hear what they're up to, what progress is being made, what issues are out there, what's been left behind. We are so thrilled tonight to have. She is the CEO, she is a chief lobbyist, she is a hashtag badass woman who is down in Olympia fighting on our behalf to get legislation passed and through the system to help advance our communities. I want to welcome Paula Sardinius on. She's been on Heartbeat in the past, but let's welcome her back to Heartbeat this evening on Converge Media. And let's hear from her some of her thoughts, her work that she's been doing, her perspective about some of the issues. Paula, welcome back to Heartbeat, and thank you for
1: being here live in the studio with me this evening. Thank you so much, Cindy. It's wonderful to be here, and thank you so much for always giving a platform to um, just the Black community and uplifting what we do. This was the 105-day legislative session. It was absolutely grueling, $69 billion budget, uh, major, major investments, and uh, children with disabilities, education, education. A billion dollars invested into housing, lots of money into your favorite nonprofits, um, strengthening our small businesses and our economic development. So, I'm looking forward to having this conversation with you and talking a little bit about what we do. Um, as the founder of the Washington Build Back Black Alliance, we house 16 of your largest nonprofits and we work across Washington state. Our goal is to give voice to the voiceless, but it's to make sure that you have not only a seat at the table, but a voice in the room where the decisions are made. We work all Four Corners, uh, House Democrats, House Republicans, Senate Democrats, Senate Republicans. This year, we worked on bills for the governor's office, DNR, the attorney general, the treasurer. So if the policies impact Washington state, we are there making sure that you are heard, you're represented, and then we're coming back to you for that accountability and those results. So looking forward to having the conversation. Yes, I let's, let's start there because I we, <laughs> Paul and I were uh, we
0: were talking before we went live, and you were giving me all this juicy information. The tea, <laughs> <laughs> you were spilling the tea, and so let's just start with maybe highlighting some of the major bills that got passed this session that help advance our community. So I know Representative Jamila Taylor is working on a housing bill. Why don't you just
1: give us an oh overview God. of these bills? So so housing is is my passion. I serve on the board of the Washington Low Income Housing Alliance, and so you're talking about Um, The CHA, the Covenant Home Ownership Bill, which is House Bill 1474, it will be signed ad NAM into law by the governor on Monday. That bill uh, removes some of the racist covenants that date back to 1968. Such as? Redlining. Those HOA covenants that say because you are black and we are women or you're interracially married or you might have a child with disabilities or you're indigenous or Latinx or gay, you can't live in this community. They were deed restricted. It puts Hundreds of millions of dollars into first time homebuyer programs. It pays for closing costs. Um, it is probably one of the most consequential housing policies, uh, not just in Washington state, but in the United States. We often say you cannot repair where you do not invest. And so, Representative Jamila Taylor should be on everybody's list as the housing champion for 2023, um, along with other champions like Representative Bateman, who passed 1110, which is the missing middle. We know that missing middle has been an, an issue for cities like Seattle for a long time. That's increasing our housing supply. And looking at GMA, that bill will be signed at SEIU's headquarters between eight and ten on Monday morning. So when we say this is the year of housing, 400 million dollars again to provide that housing support. Looking at just not. You know inventory and supply but making sure that we can get permitting done making sure that we can work with those local jurisdictions because we are 147 thousand units behind in the black community
0: and so when you I'm I'm following your acronyms a little bit our audience may not know some of the acronyms so when you talk about um, the middle the missing middle. Who specifically are you referring to with that?
1: So that that's like our multi generational housing. Um, I am unabashed about saying I'm am I'm a proud mother. I have children graduating. I'm 50 years old, and I think about my daughter that's graduating from Wazoo. So if I owned my house and I wanted to put an ADU, I wanted to expand that. This bill will allow folks to be able to do that to take their home and be able to add, make it a twoplex or a fourplex or a sixplex, so that if I had an aging parent that I wanted to age in place, they. Could stay there but i could also say my 22 year old may not be able to afford the seven or eight hundred thousand dollars into saddle so, so why and so and why so. can't we take our property and expand that and create multi-family housing on our own lot so was that restricted historically that you couldn't expand? It has expand been her? restricted. Okay. We we have lived in single family uh, units, and so there would be deed restrictions that'll say you can't build in certain communities. Um, and we call them NIMBYs. Not in my backyard. These kind of multi level units, whether people didn't want to obstruct views, or I heard in Auburn, for example. They just didn't want these units. They said they're going to bring the wrong type of people. They're going to be bringing drugs. They're going to be bringing crime. They're low income. And what we had to say is that we love to be able to create more housing to keep families together diverse families, communities of color. And sometimes it takes three or four incomes together to be able to afford housing. So if you can build a duplex or a fourplex or a sixplex where you can have multi families living there. What you're doing is you're keeping generations of family together instead of you know gentrifying and separating families from their homes
0: and was any work done to the point about that it takes three and four um, members or different families to be able to have one entity of wealth generation was there any work done in session to address the massive disparity in economic or earning potential or, you know, earning parity for?
1: (laughs) I love you because you're asking all of the right questions. Um, We try to do a lot of things. Um, Treasurer Mike Pellacciotti brought um, the Washington Future Fund bill, which we worked on. A lot of people were calling that baby buns. It would have invested $4,000 in every child born on AppleCare. Um, We estimate that it would have lifted an entire generation out of poverty. They could have used that money between 18 and 35. You could have used that money to buy a home or go to college. Unfortunately, that bill did not pass it had about a 100 million dollar fiscal note um even though we have majorities in the house and senate we didn't have the political will to invest in washington's future which are their children but we did pass a constitutional amendment which gives this treasurer more options for those investments now we've seen baby bonds in places like connecticut we did look at universal basic income Uh, we, We had that bill that bill also didn't pass these bills passed their first committees of reference many of them died in appropriations because they had large fiscal notes and so Cindy what I would say to you and to your audience is we have to ask ourselves do our investments in Washington state align with our values if we're not willing to invest in our children, if we're not willing to invest in a universal basic mm-hmm. income for the least mm-hmm. of the, if we're not willing to make sure um, that you don't need to combine three incomes just to own a home, right? are we progressive or progressive? Right. That's, you know, that's my peeve about
0: yeah. um, earning parity, right? Because yeah. we're still at the 53 cents to the dollar. So what I re paraphrasing what you just said. So we, what did not go through is, universal basic income, which could have been a huge benefit to particularly during COVID. So what was that? Was it Andrew Yang promoting that yes, when he ran? Yes, Andrew Yang promoted that. That um, trying to get Katie
1: Porter, Elizabeth Warren. Right. Yeah.
0: So we mentioned these things because we want to make sure we keep these issues in the community's forefront, because these are the kind of things, even though when you talk about the housing and the multiple families, it's a it, it solves a symptom of the problem, but it's not solving the actual problem problem, which is around, I mean, the word I'm it reparations, right? We haven't solved the fact that we don't own properties. We don't, our earning parity is so far and wide, like billions. I I heard a quote about GDP spend on black business in 2022 was one point something billion. And in a state with 5% 5% black population, that number should have been 22 billion. So the deficit is so wide and deep that when you think about equity, even though these are great solutions, like I'm not discounting or, cause I I don't work in local politics directly. And I see how hard you and other people have to well, work just to get what you got. absolutely passed. not
1: enough. And and, th- and this is where the accountability comes in, right? And mm-hmm. um, when we talked about this with the missing middle bill, it, it was pared back. And so some of the things we really wanted, we didn't get like some communities, um, like where I live, I live in Issaquah, they get to opt out of things like six plexes. Um, the wealthier communities get to pick and choose. And so I think we have to be very honest with community to say it is about empowering your voice, making sure you're you're using your voice, but you have to hold the legislature accountable. You've got to hold your local city council and these mayors and people that went down there and testified to get some of these bills accountable. It's important to say what we didn't get as much as it's to talk about what we did get, because there's a lot of stuff that got left on the backroom floor. So I wanna I wanna talk about that and I wanna
0: get through some of the wins we have, but I do definitely wanna talk about the accountability piece, because um, we need to talk about how we help mobilize and get other people interested and elected into office to help
1: change the power structures that are in place. But I'm
0: going to let you continue. So, housing so was one of the
1: housing was big. Um, obviously, cannabis social equity. This this marked the tenth year that Washington legalized adult use cannabis in Washington State. Um, 556 licenses. Three percent belong to African Americans. This past. March, they opened up the first 45 licenses that happened under twenty-eight seventy. So then we passed uh, Senate Bill 5080, led by your phenomenal Senator Rebecca Saldana from the 37th Legislative District, which will add an additional 52 licenses with the opportunity to add additional licenses every other year. It'll add 100 um, producer licenses and 10 processing licenses. Are people... Obtaining those licenses. Well, the, it it'll take time. So where we are right now in the process is the the licensing period has closed. Yes. So the Washington State LCB will hand off those licenses to the third party um, consulting firm, DEI firm, who will score those applications. I see. Once we they score them, Garrett on and yeah. So the. I remember it ended at the end of March. Well, that we extended it by 30 days. Okay. Um, because again, talking to equity, coming onto your show, hearing back from community, um, that folks needed just more technical assistance, Cindy, around being able to start their LLC. There was a slowdown in processing at the Sauce office. Remember, there were some technical glitches there. Mm-hmm. So uh, we took that as an emergency petition to the LCB and they responded to community by extending the application 30 more days, so it closed on April the 27th at five o'clock. So now we are, what, four or five days post-closing. They'll let us know when they hand those off. The provider will then send everyone that applied a link to upload their documents so they can be scored. And based on how you score against the rubric, they'll take all of those applications and then they'll be able to award those 45 licenses.
0: What was the rubric scoring people on?
1: It's 310 points. And so it looks at the totality of your story. I see. You know, before, if you had a cannabis arrest, you were almost barred or excluded. That counted against you. Today, you get additional points for that. If you have any other drug arrests, if you lived in a disproportionately impacted area, um, you get to have a social equity program where you can not only tell your story, but you can talk about how you want to invest in the proceeds. Like, why would Cindy Bright be a great person to own this business that could gross millions of dollars? I was trying to get my son to get one of the licenses. because <laughs> I, I, he lives in may, you know, this community. I mean. Maybe you're going <laughs> to donate 5% of your profits to a fund mm-hmm. that funds affordable housing. Mm-hmm. Maybe you have a a nonprofit that helps, you know, girls in media. Like it it could be anything that you want that tells your story that says this opportunity is not just about me; it's bigger than me. And so, how do I want to give back to community? One of the questions that was asked to me about that was,
0: "Do can we apply for that and then hold on to it until I'm ready to stand this up, right? To invest in this because." People have jobs, like there's a million reasons why. And I forget who I asked, but I was told that that wasn't the case, that they had to actually apply for the license and they had to pursue getting the.
1: Yes, it is there. And so I would say two things. There isn't an infinite pool of licenses. The, the folks that really have advocated for this, you know, that you had more dispensaries prior to the legalization that belonged to black people, than you're going to ever have opportunities that that ship has sailed right? Washington um, during COVID grossed an additional $1.2 billion over the $2 billion they made the year before. And so the notion that we could hold an opportunity while someone is figuring it out, this is what I would say to them. Uh, when someone goes and gets a McDonald's franchise, they don't hold it. They put those arches up and they get to business. So you have an opportunity to wait for the licenses under 50, 80, or this is maybe not your opportunity. There are folks that have been ready, willing, willing, Um, And waiting for 10 years for this opportunity, we're always going to have more people that are currently ready that are black and brown than licenses. So what I would say is we can't let um, other folks who are thinking about it be a hindrance to those who are actually ready.
0: And they can stand, they can get a business outside of the zip code.
1: Yeah, there's plenty of answering businesses. So, you know, you'll be able to move your license anywhere within the county that which you apply, which I think is phenomenal. You couldn't do that before so the license will be portable and it'll be movable and then there's no hurry before you got your license and you had to have within you know 90 days you had to be up and running that's not what they're doing now so if you are one of the people that gets a license in June or July whenever those licenses got and that is an arbitrary time frame I don't know so don't hold me to that but if you get that license there is no time frame for when to answer your questions that your business has to be open On average, the people that we have helped, it has taken a year sometimes to find a location. And is there capital that came with it to help people to be able to... There there is, but it's not enough. Um, What we got in technical assistance is enough to provide some technical assistance. So Commerce got money for a mentoring program that is financial mentoring, um, legal business plans, which is really good because before you could go a couple of hundred thousand dollars in debt just with that. So now that's all free. But it's not going to be the three or $400,000 you know on... Uh, the flower that you need to buy. It's not gonna be the seed to sale system or security folks need to really understand this is a business just like any other business only it's highly regulated Mm -hmm. so you're going to need to have some capital you're going to need to have an investor um and i know that there are people that that feel a certain type of way about that but that's this is business we i'm a former banker so i just need to be honest if you walked into my bank and you said i want to have a food truck okay we would talk about it i'd look at your recipes i'd look at your potential for success right and i might be able to extend you a small business loan, and you might have to go to sba this is a business just like that would be a business right and so you're going to have to come to the table with some skin in the game but some of the challenges
0: i would say yes and some of the challenges that black people black businesses have experienced particularly post-covid is the ability to access capital and so the the scoring, which is why I asked about the Rubics, right? The, the methodologies that are used to determine, you know, credit scores um, in the you know rental market, two and a half times to three times, like that keeps weeding black people out because 100%. that's
1: the traditional way. And, and we got to talk about predatory lending and the way mm-hmm. cannabis is different. So that that would be a challenge in any business. Mm-hmm. Access to capital is a problem in any business. During COVID, 624 businesses closed in Seattle. Um, and so that number was exponential if you were Black or BIPOC. That is a real problem we didn't get the ppp loans yep. we didn't get the idle loans and the other things i know that there's still people that were checking sba every day until they got the email that the money was gone and they were still waiting i was one of them i, I wasn't I was gonna right. ask <laughs> you queen but <laughs> yeah like, so, so and so that's that kept a, getting put out of the queue out of the queue <laughs> the and then you calling out the black hole so that's a problem but then this is the other part of that right now imagine you're trying to open bit open a business where it is state legal 10th amendment but federally illegal. And then there are banking connections. Mm -hmm. So this isn't like opening up a consulting business or a retail restaurant where you can go and get all of these other lending capabilities. And that's what I said. People have to understand. um, I don't care what, whether you're black or white, what your race is. You gotta understand this is a highly regulated business where cannabis is still a schedule one narcotic. So until we decriminalize on a federal level, there's a whole level of complexities that that does not aid you in getting access to that capital. Mm -hmm. So you've got seven to nine financial institutions here that have cannabis commercial services. And then it's all private money, but it was private money for the white folks too. The difference between them is some of those guys were Microsoft millionaires and they had the capital to invest. So we have to talk about structural and systemic racism yes but it but it is i mean it it is what it is there're going to be those barriers but until we decrim on the federal level yeah you can't go down to El Fargo and say hey i need 2 million dollars for my cannabis business. that loan doesn't exist
0: yeah yeah all right so we covered some housing, we covered cannabis. What other bills do you oh want my to God. There,
1: There's so much. I, I think um, I would be remiss not to talk about, um, I call them children with exceptional opportunities, formerly known as children with disabilities. Um, for the past probably five or six years, organizations like ARC, um, the United Way of King County, just so many people, the Urban League's doing this tremendous work, right? They have all said, we have never fully funded um, or aided those children and their parents. Washington made a monumental and just substantial investment this year. Um, Think about being the parent of a child with special needs. You are their chief advocate. And so this year, Washington said, we see you, we hear you, and we're gonna make sure that our dollars follow that intentionality unprecedented funding for that another little bill that a lot of folks are probably not familiar with that i'm super excited about uh, made sure that children in grades k through four get free breakfast and lunch in our public schools so if you're in a school where 30 percent of your students receive free and reduced lunch and most of them do Now it's, we call it the free lunch meal. And think about it, you can't learn if you're hungry. Mm -hmm. Who lies about being hungry, right? Mm -hmm. And so there's no food shaming, there's no litmus test. You just go to school, you get your free breakfast, you get your free lunch. Marcus Riccelli did that bill. um, With the Attorney General for seven years, we've been trying to disband gun violence. We don't even have to talk about um, the loss of, of, you know, wonderful folks like young Elijah here. Mm -hmm. And so out of those seven bills, we did ban assault weapons, we have increased um, the time with the background checks and making sure that you're trained before you get a gun. And so I think that that's, you know, the signature legislation of Senator Patty Cooter and other folks in the governor, and the attorney general doing that phenomenal work. Um, a ton of work around missing and murdered and in indigenous women. Um, we've funded more money to make sure that women can have their sexual assault kits processed. We know that that's really super um, important and just you know additional investments you and I were talking about credit and capital we have increased the funding for a pilot through the Department of Commerce to make sure that the smallest micro businesses and by micro I mean the folks that are one to five mm-hmm. have a pilot that will help them with their credit because a lot of what happens with either idle or SBA people sometimes I mean tr- seriously sending people don't know their credits not good
0: yeah, and I'm going to give you some editorial comment about that specifically. I actually had a conversation with someone this morning about this. You know, I advocated in my own way during COVID and PPP and all that stuff. The formulas that were being used to make decisions were formulas that are similar to qualifications to sit in c C-suite and yep. qualifications. So... Why can't that be simplified? And let me explain what I'm, my thought process is, right? So why can't we just look at the fact that, okay, if you have a business that's been in business for zero to five years and we say, okay, we're going to give you $150,000 and a business that's been five to 10 years, will give 200. Like, why can't we give something meaningful first off? Because why can't we use basic math or basic thinking about how do we allocate money instead of putting people you, you No can. black people and my black people will probably it, cringe when it, i say you this. can but if you if you think about the earning despair disparities right if you're still making 53 cents to the dollar you're still robbing peter to pay paul so you can't keep 800 credit scores when you are making half of what the your worth is on the market that is impossible to do and people would say look at the minimum wage in this town and look at the cost of housing here
1: no one can do that. Well, remember, credit was predicated really based on white males. Mm-hmm. Women stayed at home. They didn't work outside the home, so they were home taking care of the kids. And at one point in time, we just didn't even exist. Mm-hmm. They weren't seeing our humanity. So the credit scoring system, which um, I'm working with a wonderful group called Folstead Public Affairs, we want to wholesale dismantle the use of credit scores in lending and housing and other things because we understand and we have the data to prove that it is systemically and structurally yeah. So in the process of what we're doing that Linda Womack at the Department of Commerce and Cheryl Smith are two director level people that are doing phenomenal work and your audience needs to write those names down and remember who they are. Okay say those names. Linda Womack. um, (laughs) She used to be in Tacoma heading up a wonderful program there but she will be heading up this program called SSBCI. It will have about $165 million of small business lending and grants. Um, And Linda will be working with different community leaders to shape how that money will go out. And some of the things that she's done, and she and I talked about this, is everything that you're saying. It might be easier and better, and I know they're contracting and they're talking to folks now to have a CBO or a local organization and community that knows all of their small businesses, they know Cindy. They know Bonabona Coffee. They know these small businesses and organizations, right? So they don't care what that person's credit is. They they know how they serve community. Yeah. They know that they're doing a good service, and so it's almost like a communal type of lending. Key
0: point. And so key, key point. Yes. Is that so they're we are
1: literally we, doing the work. Doing the work. Right. So, and so, Linda Womack is going to be standing up that program. Um, I can tell you, Cheryl Smith is already in the process of making sure that they're getting a consultant to make sure that we are listening. Cheryl has actually been doing this work at least three to five years. Yeah. And I would just tell community, I know that it feels like the, the wheels of justice grind slowly, Yeah. but it would be dishonest and disingenuous not to highlight the work that Cheryl's doing and saying... It's going to happen. This happened pre um, Mr. Floyd being killed. This is work that she believes in. She is a white woman, but she's an equity ally. And she is deeply involved in making sure that these micro businesses, these small businesses can survive. But she's passionate about giving the power back to community. So when you say this stuff and they hear it, the department of commerce is listening okay
0: we're going to take just a quick commercial break and then we're going to come back and pick up the second half i knew this was going to be the fastest hour because paula's got so much information (laughs) but we'll be back in just a couple minutes
1: COVID 19 are my income my health and my family we were about to lose our home when we heard we might be eligible for homeowner assistance funds from the government we called 1-877-894 home and a housing counselor stepped in they talked to our lender and saved our home because falling on hard times does not have to mean losing your home federal funding details at washingtonhaf.org
0: Welcome back to Heartbeat. I'm your host, Cindy Bright. Joining me this evening is the CEO and chief lobbyist of FMS Global Strategies. She is Paula Sardinius. She is giving us a ton of helpful information today to hear about what took place during our legislative session this year. And so, I just want to remind everybody that we're really fortunate that we live in Washington State. Now, I'm the first to admit, this is not. Perfect. And it's not progressive like we think, but we definitely are focusing on the right things here in Washington state. Maybe not moving at the pace we all want, but we're focused on those. And so let's bring Paula back in um, and continue on this conversation because you were also going to talk about the Blake bill.
1: Yes. So session ended on April the 23rd. in just a very anticlimactic fashion. So many of you realized the Blake decision um, said that you can't just tr- be charged with simple possession of drugs. Um, we did a stopgap fix. But what it basically said is if the legislature did not have a legislative fix by July the first, we would basically decriminalize drugs in the state of Washington. And so um, there was a lot of back and forth. We didn't get any Republican votes on the bill. But it came down to two things, whether or not we wanted to include a misdemeanor or a gross misdemeanor in the bill Uh, the Senate ended up sending the house gross misdemeanor and we had 15 Democrats that just couldn't find it in their conscience to vote for that is a philosophical conversation about the war on drugs and how we see um, dealing with that here do we want to lead with compassion or do we want to continue to criminalize people's, you know, sickness? And so, Cindy, let's, let's get into it. Let's talk about it because they're going back. The governor said yesterday there will be a special session the last two weeks of May uh, because we simply are not ready to have a Washington state where we legalize fentanyl in the, in the use of hard drugs.
0: Let's just look at downtown Seattle right
1: now. Absolutely. And what we've heard from the local mayor said it's not sustainable mm-hmm. um, and not just from a public safety vantage point, which is a real argument, right? Like people have a right to be safe in their homes, in their presence. Um, and it's not just Seattle. It's, it's, it's Pasco, it's Kennewick, it's, it's Clark County. I've been all over. Um, but it's also the fact that our first responders are taxed to the hilt. We've had, you know, twice the number of fentanyl overdoses that we've had. Our coroners are taxed because many people are dying. And so this really is a matter of life or death. What do we want to do? There's tons of funding in there for wraparound services, probably not enough. But the question is, how much stick do you want to have and how much carrot? Um, And so I think that where we're coming down is people believe that there needs to be some element of criminal justice intervention because left to one's own devices, folks are simply not you know, able to, for whatever reason, I don't think it's a lack of motivation because who wants to be on drugs, right? But people aren't choosing that deterrent. And so I think when the Senate sent over gross misdemeanor, um, they thought if, if a person is facing that, then they're gonna exercise these options to get treatment and to take some of that. But where we were pushing back or where some of my my clients in the Washington bill Black Alliance pushed back, We know that gross misdemeanor can sometimes keep your housing application from being approved. We know that that's impacted people from getting other social services because it comes upon the criminal background check. It is one level below a felony, whereas a simple misdemeanor um, doesn't have the same demonstrative criminal justice impacts on it. And so um, they'll go back to session in a couple of weeks. And I think the Democratic caucuses between the House and the Senate, they have to work that out because what we can't have, and I don't think what anyone wants to have, is the wholesale legalization of drugs because then in every county you'll have local mayors, local city councils making their own laws. So imagine this. You could be in the city of Seattle where they say, okay, to heck with it, we'll just fully decriminalize. I'm not saying they're going to do that, but that could be a possibility. Then you could drive up the street to Renton where they pass a law that says it's a felony. And then you could drive to Issaquah where they have a law that says it's a misdemeanor and then you could go to Bellevue where it might be a gross misdemeanor. Every city would make their own policy if we don't have a state law.
0: The fentanyl issue, and I'm not an expert on it, nor have I done a lot of due diligence on it, but um, didn't the attorney general, Bob Ferguson, win recently like a $1.2 billion lawsuit okay. yeah. on behalf of the state and he sued the drug companies for
1: the distribution of these drugs? The, the distribution and how they were marketed, right? Like they're, When you go into drug testing as a drug company, right, you know... Um, the caliber of the drug you're putting out and the propensity for a drug to become addictive. What these private families who own these companies knew is that fentanyl, which was designed to be a cancer treating drug, was then they, they allowed it to be prescribed for pain, that it was highly addictive. That was not its highest and best use. They saw their numbers with the number of scripts that were being written for pain and what they saw were dollar signs. So that's where I was going with the it's question outrageous. is they should be paying fines, they should be in prison. Correct. So if we dis, if the state
0: decides that they're going whatever they're gonna make this or do this, are they including the drug companies too? Because they're criminal for pushing it in the street and making profit off of it and killing people and all the things like you can't that we you can't put a band-aid on a system you have to deal with the actual system that is funneling those drugs out into the street
1: well whether or not because on a state level it's very difficult to legislate what a private company can do those are usually federal causes of action what your attorney general can do is what ag ferguson and so many can do you can have a private right of action which means the ag can sue for cause on behalf of the state because washington is so disproportionately impacted we have more fentanyl deaths than like in New York has, right? So he did a private right of action and sued. Then he can take those dollars and for some of the diversionary programs, the treatment programs, the wraparound services, that's dollars that can be used to help to treat those families that are impacted, right? pay for first responders, pay for overtime, pay for clean needles and treatment sites, fund the programs that have to then go out and provide the support to these families, right? So you can fund that because we're talking, there has to be billions of dollars invested Mm -hmm. to get people off of these drugs. And so that's where those dollars come in. You take it and then you reinvest it back into communities, but then you still have to have some deterrent. What do you say to someone who's been battling addiction, who's maybe 30 years old and they've had addiction since they were 12? Mm What are the services you're going to provide? Are you, is it best for a social worker to go out and talk to that person, a drug treatment counselor, mm-hmm. um, or police? Most people, especially in our communities, don't trust the police, so they can't be the people responding on the first line. So there's got to be funding to make sure people from community by community are the ones that are on the front on the front lines responding to those people that are in need. Mm-hmm. It is um, not just a drug crisis, but it's also a behavioral health crisis. Mm-hmm. That we're dealing with why is it increasing at the rate that it is well because uh, great questions unlike some of the drugs we've seen in the past fentanyl is cheap and so the cartels that manufacture this little blue pill they can they can make millions of them and sell them for three or four dollars a pill you know i'm old enough to remember you know a dime bag right you know so you get ten dollars to get you marijuana twenty dollars to get you a vial of crack well it's it's three dollars from what i'm told it's a higher high that doesn't last as long. Mm-hmm. So you need to buy more of something that gets you higher for a shorter period of time, but it costs you less money than what you used to go and buy marijuana from, you know, which has a different type of effect. And so the reason people are overdosing on it is because of the different things that they cut fentanyl with. When you're buying the illicit drug, you don't know if, it's, if you're getting the batch that was cut with a horse tranquilizer you don't know what the dosage is well that's why you're overdosing i mean let's be transparent here you know i'm i'm a prince girl i grew up listening to prince my whole life prince overdosed and died from fentanyl Mm -hmm. it is killing people it's not just killing the people on the streets of seattle or new york or savannah Mm -hmm. georgia or jacksonville florida it's killing celebrities prince overdosed on fentanyl and so when did you know that yeah Mm -hmm. he did Prince died of a fentanyl, but Prince also had had two hip replacement surgeries and a knee surgery. Prince was provided. Prince didn't drink alcohol. He was prescribed fentanyl for pain, Cindy. Is he this, got addicted. Is,
0: are they looking at the deaths along race? Abs-
1: absolutely. Is it killing? Is, is black community more? I don't have the data. Um, I didn't look at that before I came. And so we, and it's, it's on DOH, right? So any anyone can go to Washington State's Department of Health website, because it's public data beyond there. Um, I wouldn't be surprised, but I can't quote that because I haven't looked at the data. Okay. I just know, I think it was about two weeks ago before session ended, we were double the amount of deaths that we had last year, and we were trending higher than any other urban city in the United States our size. That's frightening. So that isn't sustainable. So Imagine being a parent that got that call.
0: July first is that what you said?
1: Well, on, if no legislative fix happens, the decision's already made. Those drugs will become legal. We will legalize hard drugs and a car that's in, in the state of Washington. Holy cow. So they're going back oh <laughs> to, to their day jobs um, to try to come up with a legislative fix because then what you would have is. For the police departments that are whipping people up into a frenzy, for local mayors who, who are rightly concerned. I mean, I've read, um, I see this in Snohomish County, they've already dropped a bill. I've seen other counties dropping bills that make it a felony. What they will do is if you are publicly using drugs, you will be arrested for fe- a felony. We call it street sweeps. They will just go and start sweeping these folks up and so if we don't want to go back to that and, and for you and i we know um black and brown people we call that wod that's the war on drugs or yeah. the war on poverty right and so i think what we have to do and you and i talked about this before this is where accountability comes in we elected 147 people do your job
0: <laughs> let's talk about that let's get oh, yeah. it to that do your job 147 people are in elected seats um is the legislator doing their jobs are are we getting what our community needs from our elected officials
1: i think it depends on who you ask in your district i'll say this um running for office and being elected is, is just an admirable job it is it is beautiful it is a tough job it is a thankless job um if if before anybody judges any politician let me tell you something half the people within the sound of my voice couldn't do what they do I'm down there every day. I'm behind the curtain. It is an extraordinarily difficult and thankless job. Uh, there are some elect officials that are down there and they are they're down there for the righteous cause. They believe in their constituents. I think about Chapala Street from the 37th, Senator Saldana, Tara Simmons. Um, I have cried and wept with Senator Patty Cooterer. Um, I think about Representative Jamila Taylor, I think about Representative Christine Reeves, Representative Deborah Intamin, I think about Republicans like, you know, Representative Dent. I think about Republicans like JT Wilcox. They're on both sides of the aisle. Um so it is a really tough job. People were crying on the 105th day. There are bills that people fought hard for for their constituents. And they gave it all they got and they didn't get it. I remember when the um, universal bill didn't pass, it was like a gut punch. Mm-hmm. You ever had to console a lawmaker when they did all they could and they didn't get something? And then we have people that are, are guilty of political posturing. They're down there running for their next elected position, Um And there has to be some way to make sure that community knows that they're advocating, but not for you. Um, They're not listening to community. When we talk about the fact that we don't want police pursuits, we don't want knees on necks, and they're passing those types of bills. Um, And we've got to be able to have a way to have them be accountable to the folks that they didn't think they needed to meet with during session or they didn't need to listen to. They need to understand those are the people's seat. We pay for it. We send you there and we can send you home
0: which seats do you feel the community should focus on to unseat who
1: should we be unseating in the legislature well i I tell people this it's a job interview whether it's a 60-day session or 105-day session it's a job interview Um, and everybody gets a performance review and so whatever district you live in you should be asking three questions What policies did you pass that are going to benefit the most disproportionately impacted person in your community? If you're a black or BIPOC, what bills did you pass or appropriations that are going to lift up economic prosperity and generational wealth? And what were your commitments to dismantling structural racism beyond the fact that no one was killed by police and there were no protests? and you need to hold people accountable to what are the answers to those basic three tenets of questions because that's what I call progressive, right? What did you advocate for? Um, And then they need to be able to articulate that. I can tell you um, there was, and I mentioned Chapala Street. There's an organization that does a lot of mentoring with African American youth. They've never had a state appropriation. I brought it to them this year. I said they do good work. And here's the option. If we don't reach these 14 to 18 year old boys now, they're going to be in gangs and we're going to bury them in four years. I need money to make sure that they can hire more mentors. And we believe that black children are best mentored by other black men. He put that money in the budget and it's there today. That's a champion.
0: That's a champion.
1: Representative Jamila Taylor, that's a champion. Mm-hmm. Representative Bateman, missing middle, that's a champion. Tar Simmons, that's a champion, right? I was telling you about Representative Ricelli. Your fourth graders are going to get food K-through in every school. Uh, you know, Representative Tana Sen. Our black childcare workers brought us an issue where HOAs were pushing them out because they're keeping black children from mothers who work who want in-home child care. They were being run out of the business. We took that a ton of sand, that bill passed, the governor signed it a couple of days ago. Does your firm
0: keep, you brought this term up before we were on air and it is so brilliant. <laughs> Do you keep key performance indicators Absolutely. on every elected official? And are you able to share? You may not have the data today. And I'm, I'm going deeper on this question because I think people need to understand You know, I I guess the general public would think most of the elected officials don't do anything on our behalf anyhow. And many people have thrown their hands up with politicians. But if we're able to start to show by legislative district, your senators, your representatives and what they achieved and then give them a report card on that. And that controls whether they get reelected or not. So it's a question. It's how business is done. Right. You either cut it or you're out. And then. Do are are there any conversations about term
1: limits here in Washington state? There aren't conversations, but there should be. When you look at um, like OIC, I'm uh, so happy to, to OIC know is office of insurance. Uh, a Democrat occupied that office for 20 something odd years. Um, he announced that he's not retiring. A good friend of mine seeking that office. But it's not a lifetime appointment. This isn't the Supreme Court. And so, with Governor Inslee um, retiring, and when we look down slate, this is going to be a generational change. Mm-hmm. And so, when we look at the fact that there's only one woman elected statewide, and that's um, Hillary Franz in DNR, there's only one person of color elected statewide, that's Steve Hobbs, Secretary of State. Well, how exactly how long are Black people supposed to keep waiting? We've got 10 people serving in the Legislative Black Caucus. So to answer your question, not only do we keep a scorecard, my PDC is public. You can put in my first and my last name in PDC. Um, we spend 70 to $100,000 in the election cycle and we send people home. Um, I don't care about people's feelings. I don't work for politicians. I work for the people. And if you don't do the job, <laughs> we will send you home. We partner with other PACs that have millions. Um, I don't go to Olympia to make friends. I go to make policy and I go to make a difference. I got all the friends I need. I'm 50 years old. I've had them since I was five. Um, we are the reason that some people don't seek office mm-hmm. because when session's over we visit with them we sit down we look people in the face and we go you didn't do your job and my job is to send you home
0: do we see why we need more <laughs> black women i mean this is
1: a black woman thing we, right? we, like, yeah i mean not afraid we don't say pain. go hard or go home oh, we go so. we got bus pass or we got uber <laughs> but you're going um, and then we we announce who we've recruited to run against them Thank and we fund that person and then we come out swinging because it is when people say it's not personal it is personal which districts should we be focusing on for this next election cycle? All of them. <laughs> They're all up for re-election. It's, it's like this. I tell people, you, you need to earn the right to keep your seat, and you need to earn the right to serve the public. I, a good friend of mine was Steve Kirby, and he served for 22 years in the 29th. And I remember when Steve barely beat this wonderful woman, um, Latina woman named Charlotte Mena. And um, I went on a postcard for Steve in every box in that district. And People were calling me. They were like, there's a black woman on a postcard for Steve. And I told him, I said, I love Charlotte. I think she's wonderful. What do you think we ought to do? He said, I think this is my last election. I think I'm going to step aside and let her have it. And he retired. I love him. He's like a dad to me. You need more people like that. Mm-hmm.
0: I said, I-, I, we've, I talk, we've actually talked on this show about the need for people to learn to sacrifice and to step aside. He stepped aside, right? Because we can't change trajectory no. while we continue to
1: keep the same folks in. Step, I said I'm right. not going in this mailbox for you again. Not only did he step aside, but when when she announced he endorsed her, uh we had breakfast with her and we we worked really hard to clear the field. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there we do that for a lot of folks, but when people are getting, you know, up there and they've been there for a while, they need to go home and so we look at every single seat we look at Republican we look at Democrat we see what we can win um, we, we looked at the 42nd um, the young nice Republican guy was up there we worked really hard to get a woman in that seat Democrat woman so yeah we, we look at every seat I mean we nobody should feel safe politics is in the game of entitlement mm-hmm. the people get to make a choice and what the people need to understand is in 2024 the president is running it's the top of the ticket it's gonna be the hottest election year you have have the right to fire your elected representative if they didn't represent you. It is not the politic of entitlement. What's your view about President Biden running for re election? Most consequential president of my lifetime has done more um, than any president, won more votes, shouldn't be running for re election. Um, I, I think he is everything that is wrong with our politics. Sometimes you need to quit when you're ahead and when you've got the win. He had the win. He should have absolutely done what was best and stepped aside for someone else. And I love him. He he's won more votes than any president that's ever run, including President Obama. Mm-hmm. His policies, if we're being honest, are far more consequential than Obama and Clinton combined. These are facts. What Check you your Wikipedia. Like he got us IRA. I've been fighting 30 years for climate justice policies. He got real demonstrative diversity, equity, and inclusion policies, and he's pushing it down through the federal agencies. I mean, Cindy, I get work through my firm because of his policies. I sit on a lot of his rural councils. The stuff that he's done around food insecurities, there are black food insecurity farmers that are building their business. We're still fighting, right? I but, feel like the Democrats don't tout that enough. They need to. Like, we don't know because I, I think the lens... He's got a black gay press secretary, he's got more black people working in that administration than any administration. He gave us Justice Ketanji Brown Jackson when we couldn't confirm Merrick Garland. Mm-hmm. He's been consequential. And I said, this is when you walk and you just drop the mic, you, you won the whole ball game. But this is the thing about white men in power. They don't know when they've won. There's this really nice woman whose last name is Harris that was waiting. There's this really nice guy in California who's got Kennedy here, whose last name is Newsom. Mm -hmm. We've got an amazing governor in Maryland. Mm -hmm. And so should a guy who's going to be older than my grandmother was when she died be running? No.
0: And why is there (sighs) such a, um, what's the word? Why is it so damn difficult to just help propel people up the chain and help them move into these positions of power what why won't he step aside what is the
1: what is it because power can seize nothing power has to be taken people don't relinquish their power you you asked me something when we weren't on camera you said how'd you become a lobbyist and i told you mm-hmm. if i had waited mm-hmm. for a white person to give me an opportunity they wouldn't give it to me and I'll, I'll tell you something i didn't tell you i remember all my life i'd wanted to work for at and i'm from florida And when I finished working for President Obama in 2008, I wanted to join their legislative affairs team. There was no position and there was certainly no black woman on the team. Um, The person I ended up succeeding was a a white man who had been in that job for 25 years. And I remember my mentor, Yolanda Cash Jackson, shout out. She's a link in a Delta. And she said, they're not going to give it to you. They had a breakfast where the president of AT&T was speaking. It was called the CTO Roundtable in, in Jacksonville, Florida. And I was invited to go. I walked up to him and I told him my name. And he said, what can I do for you? I said, you don't know this, but one day I'm going to lead your government relations team here in Florida. I'm I'm going to have that job. And he looked at me, he smiled and I gave him my business card. A year later, he hired me. Power doesn't concede anything. You have to walk in like you belong there. and You have to ask for it. That whole year, I worked my butt off doing everything in a state with a population of $23 on every side of the aisle so AT&T saw me they didn't see me as a black woman they saw me as somebody that could move their policy agenda and he came and he got me and he retired that person can, so we got to do that can your firm infiltrate DeSantis now i i know ron i used to live in his district <laughs> you know um i i know ron i can tell you ron's not going to be president i can tell you his polling's not good i can tell you people in florida are tired of him and in his, in his um, antics. The problem with Florida is a problem that we have with all large states. We have large bastions of people of color that vote against their own interest. Mm. They are Cuban and they're in South Florida and they're single issue voters. Um, and
0: when you reference polling, you're able to see some insider kind of polling about how
1: he can potentially win or not. Is that? Oh, he oh, oh, can't win. Um, the, I think nearly two thirds of the Florida delegation hasn't endorsed Trump. I mean, if his polling were dog food, they'd take it off the shelf. His polling is bad, and it's mainly because of his assault on Disney. Um, so, Disney is beloved in Florida.
0: I know, I and I've been following. With oh it yeah, it's, doing. it's
1: insane and stupid. And so, are you saying then that the criminal is going to be on the Republican ticket? It will be a Trump Biden rematch. So it'll it'll be a geriatric election, <laughs> um, unless Trump is in prison for all of his crimes. And and I worry about whether that will depress the electorate because, again, your your choice is going to be two old white men. And so it'll be one who is phenomenally successful and inconsequential. Con- but I think there's resentment that he did step aside for a black woman and one who's just a feckless criminal sh- who should have never been elected to anything. But those are our choices. And I, I have to ask myself, um, as a black woman, why don't we have better choices?
0: Why don't we have better
1: choices? We have better people. Why don't we have better we have choices. choices? Yeah. Yeah. And so I, I think until we start demanding more, I think the Democrats see Biden as as, as a safe choice because they're afraid of Trump, but it gets back to the politics of entitlement. Mm-hmm. Um, we have to say to, to the Democratic Party, you're not entitled to pick our winners and losers mm-hmm. because God help us if he were to lose. And so why are you telling us that Joe Biden has to be our choice? Who made you the decider? Mm-hmm.
0: And why why did the Democratic Party not elevate the vice president to run now on this ticket to be the president?
1: Because she's a black woman. That's, that's an easy question. For the, for the same reason that the party didn't really want Hillary Rodham Clinton, there's still a lot of sexism within the party. But, um, I mean, when she ran against uh, President then-Senator Obama, I mean, he beat her in his own right because he was just an exceptional once-in-a-lifetime candidate. Um, The second time, you know, they really wanted Bernie Sanders. But if we're being, again, just honest, Hillary Rodham Clinton was the most well-educated, most qualified human being, regardless of her gender, to ever one from the presidency in the history of the presidency. And so when you are that talented and you happen to be a woman, what were they going to do? They put everything they could behind Bernie Sanders. They called her everything but a child of God and she still got the nomination, the first woman. And so we have to be honest about even within the Democratic Party, there is still this whiff of sexism. They didn't want a woman. And so the question is, They'd rather have an older President Biden than a younger, any type of woman, right? Mm -hmm. I don't think they'd have a problem if it were Gavin Newsom or a younger African-American man. I think we still, you know, if we're being honest and we're saying the quiet part out loud, they don't want a woman. Mm -hmm. And his vice president's a woman. Mm -hmm. I think if his vice president were Pete Buttigieg, we'd be having a different conversation today. Mm. (laughs) whoo <laughs> i knew we'd cover a- we having it. i mean yeah. if, it, if it were, were buddha judge i think we'd be having a different conversation today if andrew cuomo hadn't been out as governor of new york i think we'd be having a different conversation today but i think the fact that the person waiting in the wings looks more like you than andrew they're gonna run an older joe biden
0: yep Paul, what would you like to say to we've got a couple minutes left to our viewers about um, Washington state?
1: What can we start to expect next? What are you working on? Oh, my next? gosh. Well, there's so much good stuff coming down the pike. Um, millions of dollars in the CCA. So I'll tell you this. Uh, hundreds of millions of dollars for community engagement. Senate Bill 5187. You can go to Washington legislature, type in the word bill and put in that bill number. It will show you on the operating budget every dollar that was allocated. And so you also need to look at the House budgets. We need to teach our community how to read these things. Be, get, sign up if you don't get them for the emails from the Department of Commerce, a lot of grants and opportunities coming your way. What am I working on next? Well, I'm super excited to be the co-chair of the Washington State EV Council, so I'm leading the effort to make sure that we decarbonize Washington and we go green. I'm going to be traveling across the state, um, making sure that we're talking to our small businesses, doing what Cindy said, talking about credit and capitalization, but we're also doing a pivotal tool education tour this summer. We are going to be focusing over the next two, three years a lot of effort on closing the black male achievement gap. I'm very fortunate. My daughter's graduating this summer. My son has graduated, but I want your kids to graduate. So I'll be reaching out to you, hearing your voice and asking you as parents, what can we do to make sure that our black children have equal access to education? And how can we make sure that your voice is heard at the Capitol? So I am Paula Sardinas with FMS Global Strategies and the founder of the Washington Build Back Black Alliance. You can Google me. You can look me up on Instagram. We want to hear from you. because a lot of the bills that we work on we get directly from community. It's your voice. It's not about us, it's about you. We are here to uplift your voice. You are the power. And thank you Cindy, my friend and my sister for having me.
0: Yeah, look, I can't I can't thank you enough for coming on. You've done it regularly and we really appreciate you, as our
1: queen and sister, uh, down. In- and before we close it out, yeah. $200 million CRA, that money starts to trickle out in July. Community so, reinvest. Yes, and there is. And Cindy had asked about this. They tweaked the language a little bit to this in this budget, 5187 So now it includes economic development. So if you are an EDO, if you are a chamber, if you do anything around economic development, make sure that you're staying tuned and sign up for the Department of Commerce notices so that that. that you can apply for that $200 million community reinvestment money. Thank
0: you, Queen. Thank you for coming on and updating our community, giving us all the information that we need to have and pay attention to, to our audience. Thank you for joining us today and listening to this conversation. We're excited because next week I'm going to have Senator Patty Cooter coming on to have an intimate conversation with her, and you're going to be hearing more about her in the coming days. So thank you all for joining us this evening. I look forward to seeing you all next week.